0: this is the we the people our american story podcast my name is tina McCafferty. join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans combat survivors first responders and american patriots in their own words if you are pro-freedom and pro-america you are in the right place We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Andrew Wilson. I am thrilled to have Andrew on. He is the first Vietnam veteran that I've been able to get to come on my podcast. Andrew, welcome.
1: Thank you. I feel very happy to be here and honored.
0: Well, I'm excited to have you. And the first question I have to ask is: I was referred to you by Julia Carlson. Tell me how you know hey. Julia. Julia was a past guest on my podcast a few seasons ago, and I consider her a friend now.
1: Yeah, she podcast number thirty nine. Hey, yeah.
0: look at you! <laughs>
1: <laughs> now I know uh, Julia and her sister from Wesley. the Veterans Treatment Court. I was invited by Randy Edwards, who was the first uh, mentor coordinator for the Veterans Treatment Court. And uh, so I was one of the first five mentors in the Veterans Treatment Court program and proud to uh, make the acquaintance of just a boatload of great people, including Julia. What really cemented our relationship was in August of 2018, uh, I had a couple of strokes that were just terrifying, debilitating and terrifying, and Julia and her sister, through their uh, charity, Doc and Gunnies, Mm -hmm. they brought their brother, Andrew Watson, over and installed some... Lift bars in my bathroom to help me get around with my stroke. And so uh, (laughs) I think fondly of the Watson family every day when I go into the bathroom and use those (laughs) bars.
0: You're reminded of them every day. They're a phenomenal family, aren't they?
1: They're incredible. I can't wait to meet the old man, the potter.
0: I know. I have never met him, but I see him on Facebook when Julia puts some of the information about him on there. Amazing.
1: Yeah, well, one of my best friends from Utah is a guy named Joe Benyon. He's also a full-time potter. And so anybody that can do that for a living, I have uh, infinite respect for him. It's just the hardest artistic work I, <laughs> that I can know, I, that I can think of.
0: I can only imagine. Well, I think the best place to start with a story is the beginning, Andrew, will you share with us a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up?
1: Yeah, well, as Bill Cosby used to say, I started out as a child. (laughs)
0: Like most of us do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, really. No, but my dad was really paranoid about nuclear war uh, in the 40s, late 40s. I was born in 47 in Washington, D.C. We used to have an apartment that looked down out of the hills of Anacostia on the, you could see the whole city spread out uh, beneath us, but um, that was too frightening. So he moved us out to suburban Virginia. We ended up in uh, the town of Herndon, Virginia, which at that time had a population of about 115, and it was all dairy farm, it was just beautiful rolling green hills, the foothills of the Appalachians the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Then along comes uh, John Kennedy, who decided that there should be a 21st century jet port in Fairfax County. And so they took all of those rolling hills and bulldozed them and put graders on them and turned them into a billiard table. that's absolutely flat, which is now Dulles Airport. It just transformed the whole zeitgeist of the area. No longer dairy country, uh, it's now jetport country. The industry and the light industry just grew and grew and grew until finally it just became too much for me. And uh, my wife suggested You know, she did a lot of research with the places rated Almanac and so forth and suggested that we move to Utah. And I had gone to college at BYU and I said, no way. man! (laughs) I ain't moving to Utah. I've been there before. (laughs) Those people have their own way of living. Uh, My wife, Jane, and I had a house in McLean. And we put it up for sale to harvest the equity that we'd built up. And it was on the market for uh, literally for twelve months, never had anybody through. So finally, in desperation, I said to Jane, we've been this damn house. I moved to Utah in a heartbeat." And a week later, we had a full cash price for a premium over what we asked. So I figured it was Heavenly Father's way of saying, "Yeah, get over it. Move to Utah." I did want to say one of the things that made growing up in Fairfax County so unique was that we were right in the backyard of George Washington and just up the hill from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and the list goes on and on. But when I was a little guy growing up, it was my training that the founding fathers were something just a little bit short of demigods, and that they were inspired by Heavenly Father to help create this experiment in self-government that had never existed before. I grew up revering the Founding Fathers, which was the only thing that kept me from running to Canada or to Denmark when my draft notice came in 67. I I really hated the Vietnam War. I just thought it was such a terrible waste.
0: Well can I back up just for a minute? It's interesting that you said that your dad was worried about the atomic blast. My dad grew up in St. George when they were testing and oh, yeah. he said yes. And he remembers watching them do those tests off in the desert. What was it to your dad that scared him so much? Was it anything in particular?
1: Well, my dad was a World War II vet. He went to uh, North Africa just when the uh, Allies were beginning to push back against the Nazis. He was at a place called Anzio, which uh, as I've read about it, oh my God, I, I had some experiences in Vietnam, but nothing to compare to Anzio. And uh, he had PTSD really bad. I mean, of course, nobody knew what PTSD was in those days, but he looked at the world situation and the proliferation of nuclear missiles, the uh, slim possibility of surviving uh, an attack. And of course, Washington being the epicenter of the attack, he wanted to get us, his family uh, as far away as possible. And that's how how we ended up out in suburban Virginia.
0: Well, you know, this might be really sick of me to say, but I always tell my kids if something like that ever happens and they see the mushroom cloud, to run towards the mushroom cloud because you don't want to live through it.
1: Yeah, yeah I was well, like, we, just
0: run towards the cloud. Immediate death is better than the
1: aftermath. Yeah, we had a we had a similar joke about that when you see the mushroom cloud you have to bend over and kiss your ass goodbye.
0: (laughs) I love that. How did you end up at BYU? Uh,
1: I was playing in a really successful rock band back in Washington, DC, headquartered in Washington, DC, called All of the Above. And the more successful we became, uh, the more unhappy I became. You know i was raised in the episcopalian church uh where i learned a lot about jesus christ and god but i didn't learn anything about uh, ideas like wickedness never was happiness and i was pretty deep in the gutter of wickedness huh. our bumper sticker said a sex b drugs c rock and roll d all of the above check 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 um I actually got into fisticuffs with my drummer uh, who was really upset with me. I can't remember exactly why, but he tried to beat me up and I, you know, had to take him down. So I was so upset by that. Uh, And I really loved playing in all of the above. I mean, when we were on, it was a great band. It was as good as the Eagles, if I can brag. So anyhow, that was so distressing to me that, um, I got on my knees and said, okay, God, here I am. Uh, I'm pretty miserable. And if you help me find a better way to live, I'm ready to make some changes. And, um, that was on a Friday night and on Tuesday morning, I was in my house back in McLean. We were taking a day off and, uh, Heard the knocking at the door, and there are these dorks in their white short-sleeved shirts and their skinny ties and their plastic name tags. Hi, we have a message for you from God. (laughs) I thought, crap. I mean, I was really taken aback. They gave me a Book of Mormon, and I read it. I was convinced that I had something really amazing in my hand. I ended up getting baptized and the guy that uh, confirmed me a member of the church had been a professor at BYU and he knew that I was on my way to San Francisco uh, to join the music scene out there because I could no longer play uh, in the band with sex, drugs, and rock and roll boys. And so he um, challenged me on your way to San Francisco, stop by Provo and go to the campus of BYU because I have an inspiration, he said, that you belong at BYU. You need to finish your education. And uh, (laughs) I I was expelled from high school in my senior year for massive amounts of truancy. And, uh, you know, please don't throw me in that briar patch. I never graduated from high school. In August of 74, I showed up on the campus of BYU. I said, um, you know, Mark told me to come and uh, inquire about completing my education. And uh, I didn't tell him I didn't have a high school diploma. I just told him I'd taken a few classes at Northern Virginia Community College so anyhow, they said that I could that I could take classes before nine a.m. and after five p.m. But they would didn't want me as a degree-seeking student. To my utter amazement, I just got excellent grades. I got straight A's. So they let me do that again, and I got another fifteen hours of A credit. So not only did they accept me as a degree seeking student, uh, they gave me the Alvina S. Barrett academic scholarship, which I maintained until I graduated. So uh, that's how I came to BYU. I was challenged and I responded to the challenge.
0: Where were you or do you remember the day that you received that draft notice?
1: Oh yeah, I I remember it perfectly well. I was playing in a band, uh, we were playing in Georgetown, which is like the Tenderloin of Washington, D.C. And uh, the name of the band was Elizabeth Faggot's Revenge. That, That band was really taking off and we were talking to people from Liberty Records and Parrot Records about signing on and doing original songs and so forth. And so uh, I thought I was on top of the world because I'm deaf in my left ear and have been since infancy. And I thought I was like Jimmy Stewart in a wonderful life and exempt from the military. You know, I was shooting off my mouth about how terrible the Vietnam War was, et cetera, et cetera. And I was dating the, uh, the daughter of a high government official, uh, presidential appointee, in fact. I'm just guessing that he pulled a few strings to get me off the streets. There was a guy named General Hershey who uh, ran the draft board back in those days. And he said, no, nah, we'll take all those hippie war protesters and draft them into the military. That would be me, your honor. That was like in May of 66, May of 66. And so in the July, no, it was that was May of sixty-seven, because uh, in July of sixty-seven, uh, I was inducted, uh, yelling and uh, screaming and protesting. Hey, I'm deaf in my left ear. You can't, you can't draft me. And I said, "Well, better talk to the chaplain about that. Sounds like a personal problem."
0: What and, were you protesting about the war?
1: Uh. It's hard to rank that uh, sequentially. Such a complicated
0: war too, wasn't it? So complicated.
1: Terribly complicated. Uh, Basically, we were up against the Chinese and the Russians. And the Chinese and the Russians were saying, we will bury you. Our system is stronger than yours. It's more modern than yours. And you're going to die. The Chinese were making it very clear that they were going to assert their historic claims. You know, if you go back 800 years, you can see that the Chinese ruled Asia from China all the way down to Australia. I mean, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, all of that was under Chinese control 800 years ago. And so the Chinese were going to have this anti-colonial land war in Southeast Asia. And uh, the United States rightly said, we can't have that. We've got to push against that. So, I mean, that is the, the justification for having a war in Southeast Asia. But what I hated about it was that the people that were involved uh, were just being slaughtered. I mean, the the death and destruction in Southeast Asia in the early 60s was appalling, and we had (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm getting wrapped up in my uh, oh, memories and emotions. Uh, but what, what I hated most about the war in Vietnam was that it did not, um, it did not represent the will of the American people. The American people didn't want to be in Vietnam, and we were participating in corruption the likes of which uh, I had never imagined that the government could be in. I mean, we installed puppet dictatorship and um, we took over their economy and forced all of their young women into prostitution because that was the only way the families could support themselves. I mean, you know, you're going to make a choice. Uh, Either daughter's going to be a whore or grandma and grandpa are going to die of starvation. What will it be? And um, that just tore me up especially when I considered that that the houses of prostitutions were owned and operated by Americans to a great degree. Uh, I think the thing that I I really hated the most about the Vietnam War was the uh, deception and corruption that was wrapped up in the prosecution of the war.
0: What do you remember about the day that you got there?
1: Oh, I remember it like yesterday. It was really crazy. Uh, when I was in basic training, I uh, was in trouble all the time because I had such a bad attitude. And I would do the stuff that they ordered me to do, but I would do it as slowly as humanly possible. And um, so I uh, was on KP a lot, you know, kitchen police. And about the seventh time I was on KP, which was a lot, uh, the Sergeant Ramirez uh, took me aside and he says, I like the way you do dishes. I'm going to give you a hint. He said, when you go to Vietnam and you are going to Vietnam, everybody here is going to Vietnam. uh, Go look for the non-commissioned officer in charge and tell him that you want to go to Natrank. And I said, well, thank you for the tip, Sergeant Ramirez. What's in the train? And he says, oh, it's the most beautiful French resort village. It's halfway between the DMZ and Saigon. And the North Vietnamese Army uses it for an R&R center because it is a beach resort. And since Dien Bien Phu in 1954, it's never been hit, never had a rocket attack, never had a mortar. So I said, "Okay, Sergeant Ramirez, I can do that. And so the day that I landed in Vietnam, I went and looked up the NCOIC. And it was this enormous guy. He must have been seven feet tall. And um, I said, Sergeant Ramirez told me to look you up and ask you to assign me to Nha Trang. And he looked at me funny like, are you kidding me? Nobody asks to go. You're just assigned. And I said, well, Sergeant Ramirez said to look you up. And lo and behold, I got assigned to Natrang. And uh, I was an aircraft repair port specialist. And uh, it was my job to help uh, manage the supply chain for replacement parts for all the Huey helicopters. And I, (laughs) you know, I... Here I am, this uh, long-haired hippie weirdo freak who got drafted. And uh, the place where I was assigned was to 5th Special Forces Headquarters. And I don't know if you know anything about the 5th Special Forces. The 5th Special Forces was like thousands of guys who were all qualified as Navy SEALs. Gotcha. They were the ultimate... They were the ultimate warriors and they would routinely, uh, they had these things called Delta teams. And the Delta teams was two special forces guys, two Army of the Republic of Vietnam guys, uh, an officer and a non-com, and then 10 or 12 uh, mountain yard mercenaries. And the mountain yards were the native people from the central highlands of Vietnam. And during World War II, they used to routinely tell the air crews, if you're going to crash, do not crash in the highlands. Crash in the lowlands, because the highlands are ruled by cannibals. Is that and, true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You ever heard about a guy named Bo Grites? No. Uh, Bo Grites was the... Um, he was the model for the Colonel Kurtz character in Apocalypse Now, and um, he made, he helped build a relationship between the Americans and the mountain yards, what the French call the mountain people. Bo Greitz treated the mountain people with with respect, and he respected their sovereignty up in the highlands and said if you will help us prosecute this war against the Chinese, uh, we're going to make you richer than you ever dreamed of. So they built villages for the mountain yards, and they gave them food, and they gave them weapons. And the mountain yard mercenaries were just the toughest sons of bitches I ever heard of. I mean, they would routinely put a 110-pound pack on, and marched for 12 hours so that they could attack a target. And they routinely took these people into Laos and Cambodia and North Vietnam where they committed the most atrocious war crimes that you can imagine. But they were fierce, fierce, fierce allies of the United States. It really hurt my feelings a lot when the United States pulled out of Vietnam and just left all of those people to suffer under communism.
0: What was the morale like for many of the men and women there?
1: Interesting question. There was basically two classes of warriors in Vietnam. Uh, there was the juicers and there were the heads. And the juicers were all alcoholic career men, lifers, and um, they could drink like nobody's business. And then there was the underground, uh, the heads, and they were all smoking pot like nobody's business. As long as you were part of that head community, you were pretty well taken care of. I remember one time the commanding officer took me aside and he says, Andrew, you and I got to have a talk. And I just cringed. Nobody in my military career had ever called me Andrew. How he found out that I went by Andrew, I don't know, because my first name is William. And in the military, I was William Wilson. But he took me aside and he says, what do you see over there? Uh, and I said, well, it's the flight line. And I see four slicks and two gunships that ain't flying because they don't have the parts. And I was bragging because I'd been throwing sand in the supply system just to protest the war. And he says, no, I don't think you understand how you how important you are to this enterprise here. He said, when our guys out in the field radio in, and say help we're under attack and could be overrun and there's no helicopters to go and get them those guys are going to die is that what you want Andrew you want our guys in the field to die and it was that sensation you know when you go over a hill too fast and your stomach kind of comes up into your Mm -hmm. well that's the feeling that I had and I realized that I wasn't there fighting for the Constitution or the government of the United States. I was there to try and help support uh, all the guys in the field because those guys in the field were the ones that were keeping me safe. So your original question was how was the morale? When you're drunk or when you're stoned, morale becomes a secondary issue. It's are you comfortable?
0: that war when you watch movies it seems so haphazard everyone seems confused you don't know who you're fighting and because of that is that why you know these atrocious things happened to innocent people what i mean why was it was it as confusing as it appears to be in movies
1: down the chain of command it seemed chaotic and pointless to the max. But I have come to find from decades of study of the Vietnam War, that at the highest level uh, the United States had a pretty coherent strategy. And I'll tell you something that uh, you've probably never heard before, is that the United States actually won the war in Vietnam.
0: How how do you figure that? How How is that?
1: Well, for 800 years, uh, the Chinese had been relying on the Vietnamese to grow rice, to feed the people in southern China who could not feed themselves. I mean, Vietnam is the Ukraine of Southeast Asia. Mm. It's the breadbasket of Southeast Asia. The secret plan to end the war in Vietnam was to starve the people of China. And the way that they starved the people of China was by taking B-52s and filling them to overflowing with thousand pound bombs. Uh, They call them arc light or rolling thunder. You probably heard of rolling thunder. They would fly these missions 24/7, again and again and again and again, dropping these thousand pound bombs. And they would claim, oh, we've body count of a thousand North Vietnamese soldiers, that's bull. They weren't killing anybody. What they were doing was they were killing rice paddies. And when you go to Vietnam now, uh, all of that rice growing territory is now just a pockmarked landscape uh, holes 30 feet deep and 60 feet wide where a thousand pound bomb hit. And you can't transform that back into a rice paddy. And so uh, the United States just continually was destroying the food supply for southern China. And about that time, Henry Kissinger took a secret, he was the Secretary of State, he took a secret flight to China and said, look, if you'll give up on this land war that you keep talking about, if you'll give up on trying to take over Southeast Asia, we will come in and invest in China and make you the second biggest economy on earth. Your descendants seven generations from now will revere you uh, as the founders of the nation. And uh, look what's happened. Here it is. The people of Southern China are now earning their living, making cheap industrial goods for the United States, instead of taking over all of the agricultural and natural resources of Southeast Asia.
0: How long were you there, Andrew?
1: I, I was there for one year and four days.
0: You did not have to see any combat then?
1: Oh, yes, I did. Oh, yes, I did. Uh, I was uh, the supply guy for the 281st Assault Helicopter Company, and we were the company that flew all the air support for the 5th Special Forces Delta Team. Teams. One of the places that we went was Pleiku, uh, to support those operations, and then we went to another place. Um, there was a big battle at a place called Way up north near the DMZ. Yeah, we um, we were we were real close. I used to sit up on top of the bunker uh, at this place called Tokyo FOB, and I could watch. Uh, the fifth, the, the third, the fifth, and the ninth Marine divisions doing battle with the North Vietnamese Army who were trying to get into the Ashaw Valley from the sea. And uh, I could sit up there um, smoking my pot and watch the green tracers go one way and the red tracers go the other way. And um, it was a little too far away. To hear much
0: what is it that be... like is it surreal is it you're watching a movie or is does it seem real when you're watching it uh,
1: all it, it was like um, um, I can't find the words it was a different state of consciousness it was like everything was so hyper and death was so close that um, it, it had elements of watching a movie because it was happening in my field of vision and there was nothing that I could do about it. But it was it was really up close and personal because the, uh, the military intelligence guys told us that it was the plan of the North Vietnamese Army to sweep in from the South China Sea and get into the Ashaw Valley. And in order to do so, they had to come right across the Tokyo FOB where the special forces had their Delta teams camped and all of the helicopters parked. I remember one night, the um, first sergeant came in to the bunker and he said, "Um, okay, you guys, I want you to clean your weapons And get your ammo together because our intelligence is is that at dawn tomorrow, uh, the North Vietnamese army is going to overrun us. What was terrifying about it, it's kind of weird in a way, I wasn't worried about getting shot or being killed or anything like that. I took a guitar over to Vietnam with me as a Martin D-28 and um, so... There I was in the bunker at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh digging a hole, digging a bunker, and I buried my guitar. It's all about priorities.
0: My... Yeah, I mean, really.
1: I just didn't want my guitar to be broken or stolen or damaged. And uh, the next morning, I, I mean, I probably shouldn't tell this because it makes me look bad.
0: <laughs> it makes you look human that. and everybody has a past. It's okay. Yeah.
1: Well, the next morning when the sun started to come up, I went and found the um, supply officer. Uh, I was a brand new lieutenant in town. And I said, Lieutenant so-and-so, the sky is just beginning to lighten up. It's not anywhere close to dawn yet. And I said, "Um, you know, we've got these helicopters here and four of our helicopters Are running right up against their red line for the tail rotor hubs. And the tail rotor hubs can only be used 25 hours of flight time uh, because they're made of magnesium and they will fracture if you don't replace them. And he says, Well, what do you think we should do? I said, Well, I think we ought to get in the helicopter and fly down to Red Beach and get some more tail rotor hubs. And he said, That sounds like a good idea. So, That morning before dawn, Lieutenant so-and-so and and I hop in the helicopter. I mean, you're supposed to have a pilot and a co-pilot and a crew chief and a door gunner. And it was just the pilot and me, the door gunner. Off we flew to Red Beach and uh, staying in radio contact with Tokyo FOB to find out when those guys get run over. But um, they never got run over. So we came back with a bunch of tail rotor hubs that we stole from the Marines, and everything was hunky dory. I got promoted out of that too.
0: Why was drug use so prevalent?
1: Uh, why do we breathe air? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's a completely different culture. I went to this one place called Bongsan. And Bong Son was noted among Vietnam soldiers as being the source of the hottest marijuana in Southeast Asia. I mean, back in the States, they were talking about Maui Waui and Acapulco gold, but that stuff didn't hold a candle to Bong San. And so I asked these guys, I said... Uh, hey, I'm, I'm just about running out of marijuana. Can you help me with some resupply? And they said, stay right where you are. And they came back about 15 minutes later with a shopping bag filled overflowing with marijuana right off the bush. And I said, where did you get this? Magnificent hall. <laughs> this is it, it was wild out by the gate. The story that they told me was that they have groves of marijuana in Vietnam that have been growing marijuana for 10,000 years. I mean, it was everywhere.
0: That is crazy. I'm sure that, um, you saw things that haunt you and you lost friends. How do you deal with that? How did you deal with it at the time?
1: At the time, I was so busy surviving that I didn't really have much time to to reflect on it uh i've I've been in a lot of therapy with um with p t s d issues <laughs> i mean since nineteen eighty nine um, i've been dealing with um p t s d before they even had such a diagnosis but um uh, what i have had to come to deal with is that um i'd like to think of myself as being this crystalline pure wonderful man who knows all and sees all but um i'm just a punk myself and i have come to believe that almost everybody can be manipulated into doing almost anything if they are correctly motivated. And uh, I did things myself that I would be, uh, I just dread the fact that somebody's going to draw that out uh, at some point in the future and say, are you baby killer? You baby killer. I'm going to have to go, man, Uh, guilty as charged your honor. And
0: um is that the hardest part, forgiving yourself?
1: Of course. Of course.
0: And what was that like coming home to the jeers and the hatred and Americans not welcoming you home like they've done for previous wars and wars since then?
1: It was distressing it was distressing because i felt so damaged and so broken i mean I, I had to look at my social security records at one time and from 1969 until uh 1980 I had 43 jobs oh my word i i couldn't keep a job for more than a week or two because as soon as the the boss man said something i didn't like I'd give him the finger and tell him to go himself. And he'd say, okay, you're fired. And I'd say, okay. Fuck Is you. that
0: just from the built up anger that you had from the war that you couldn't express then that that time it just bubbled up and over? Or do you even know where it was from?
1: Self-hatred. I hated myself for not having the courage of my convictions uh, to say, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the consequences, I'm going to be like Muhammad Ali and I'll take my five years in in prison uh, rather than sell out and become a baby killer. But I felt at that time that my future, I mean, remember, I grew up in Fairfax County where uh, the real patriots were something short of demigods. And I thought that I had that within me uh, to try and lead the country back to the values that created the, um, out of which the constitution grew. And so um, I I really hated myself for not having the courage uh, to run. But... um, I had to forgive myself because I felt like I got this mission in the future.
0: You felt like a weakling that you went and served when you should have gone to jail because of your convictions. Right. Why is the Vietnam War so scarring for veterans such that you are the first Vietnam veteran that I have been able to have come on my podcast? None of you want to talk about it.
1: I think that what sets me apart from other Vietnam vets in that regard is that I've had enough therapy that I've come to learn that those experiences in the past are like fecal matter in a five-gallon bucket. And if you take fecal matter and you fill a five-gallon bucket to the to the rim and put a cap on, Five gallon paint bucket, man, those things are powerful. They're strong. And if you take that bucket and you bury it six feet underground thinking that you're gonna put it away, like most vets do, it inevitably through natural processes will blow that five gallon bucket apart and the hydrogen sulfide gas uh, escapes and goes into the atmosphere and the hydrogen sulfide Uh, the hydrogen, uh, hydrochloric acid will escape into the soil and poison the soil. But if you take that same five-gallon bucket of fecal matter and you spread it out in the sunshine, uh, it turns into fertilizer. So I have tried to take my Vietnam experience and uh, share with other Vietnam veterans that they can do a lot to heal their internal pain by bringing their fecal matter into the sunshine and allowing it to turn into fertilizer to strengthen us for the next chapters in our life.
0: Are you proud to say you served in Vietnam?
1: I am proud of the life that I have lived since I served in Vietnam and after I served in Vietnam because I've turned away so much about doing it for me and I get to reach out to other veterans and help them to integrate their life experience uh, into the present day so that their experience can become steel and they can go forward and reach their full potential. I'm proud of that.
0: Would you be able to play a little something for us? Um, Or is that too hard?
1: I'm, I'm not prepared to do that. Okay. My instruments are all put away. But um, what I can do is I can sing something for you.
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: Okay. So in 1974, when the Vietnam War was coming to a close, I was playing in this band, All of the Above. And we had a manager named Alan Prell, uh, Uncle Alley, for those who listen to WBAL, in Baltimore, a uh, great radio personality. And Uncle Ali uh, came to us at one of our band practices and said, there's been songs to commemorate the war's ending in World War One and Korea, World War Two, but uh, there ought to be a song to commemorate the end of the Vietnam War. And so I was very touched by that. And um, being the only veteran in in the group, um, I was so motivated that I stayed up that all that night and I wrote this song called The War Is Over, thinking, oh, we're going to have a hit record with this. And uh, so uh, I called him up at seven o'clock the next morning and I said, here, listen to this. And I played. Played it for him and uh, sang it for him. And he booked time immediately into the studio. I mean, when the studio opened at nine, he booked time. And we were in there that afternoon. I had to teach the song to the band in the studio. <laughs> it was, that was powerful stuff. So anyhow, it, uh, it goes something like this. It's over with and done except the crying. Those memories cascade and fall like rain. And days and months and years of war have ended with nothing much to show for them but pain. The war is over. Isn't that the news I heard him say? Mm, The toll has been taken. We paid the price, but who can count the ways? Justice don't come easy from the barrel of a gun. War's the simple child of lust and fear. Who can accuse some kid who pulled the trigger when the sound of his own dying was in his ears? The war is over, isn't that the news I heard him say? The toll has been taken, we paid the price, but who can count the ways? Yeah, we'll all be very happy when the warriors come home. We'll find work for the ones who did not die. Will we think about our last war before we fight the next? Or will we let our peace and freedom fly? The war is over.
0: That's beautiful. Well, thank you. That's a beautiful song. What have you done for yourself to heal? And have you forgiven yourself? (laughs)
1: What I've done to heal myself is smoke thousand pounds of pot. (laughs) No, that's a joke. That's a joke. Um, I will testify that I believe, as do many uh, physicians in the VA system, that there is no better medication for the anxiety and depression of Vietnam than marijuana. You know, like I said, I've been in therapy since 1960 or since 1988. And um, I have tried most every family of psych meds, starting with Prozac and um, ending with divulpuric acid. I mean, dozens of psych meds. And none of them work for me the way that uh, marijuana does. So, um, you know, I'm a legitimate card holding marijuana user in the state of Utah. I'm legal. Hey, I I think that I am uh, missing the real key to your question is that healing takes motivation. What is the core of the motivation? And the core of my motivation is that I believe that we rise as we lift others Mm -hmm. and that if a Vietnam veteran wants to recover from post-traumatic stress disorder, the most important thing that he can do is to find a peer and to help lift that veteran into a higher state of consciousness so that they can find a unity in their service. Because after all, when you come right down to it, those guys who have sacrificed so much in order to defend liberty, um, even though I was very conflicted about being proud of serving in the military, my veteran friends who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, in um, Somalia, in Grenada, uh, they can take pride in defending the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's motivational is to defend the Constitution.
0: So have you forgiven yourself?
1: what i have done is i have accepted jesus christ as my lord and savior and that even if i can't forgive myself for being such a weak dork uh back when i was in my 20s jesus forgives me and if jesus forgives me and well, that's enough
0: what do you think about the state of america today Does it concern you? Are we headed in the right direction? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Come on, Andrew. Tell me what you think.
1: Okay. Well, this is wild. Back in August of 2018, I had two pretty massive strokes. Uh, I remember saying to the doc, what's my prognosis? And the doc says, well... We have a lot of patients coming through here with injuries very much like yours that will spend four to six months in recovery before they can go home and have some form of independence.
0: And I'm four to six months, oh no, no. What was the extent of your stroke at the time? What was the damage?
1: Um, I couldn't speak well. I had uh, a huge weakness on my left side. On my right side, I like coordination. When I was trying to eat, I'd pick up my spoon and fill it with the scrambled eggs and then, you know, try and get it in my mouth. Uh, but I had a lot of uh, verbal losses. I could think of the words, I just couldn't say them. And so um, I'm lying there in the hospital bed asking Heavenly Father, you know, Hey, what's up? You know, what are we doing here? And, um, the word patience just came into my mind. You got to be patient, be patient. I'm there in the recovery, uh, recovery ward. And, uh, after three or four days, the uh, specialist comes in and said, you know, Mr. Wilson, you're a lot stronger than we thought that you were when we brought you in. So, um, Instead of four to six months, we'll probably get you out of here in four to six weeks. <laughs>
0: four to six weeks? Oh, no, I'm so fucked.
1: I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to swear on your podcast.
0: That's okay. I've um, had a few swear words on my podcast too, Andrew.
1: <laughs> anyhow, I'm lying there in bed. and I'm saying, oh, God, you know, what are you doing with me here? What's going on? And um, the voice in my mind, uh, said, I want you to become a recruiter for the new American revolution. What are you kidding me? Anyhow, the new American revolution.
0: Yeah. What is that?
1: That's just like the old, uh, American revolution. And that is, is that the spirit of enlightenment just flooded the minds of the founding fathers, before they were founding fathers, when they were all plantation and and traders and, and so forth, guys like Samuel Adams and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, the list goes on and on. And they just got swept away with these ideas. Holy mackerel, maybe it is possible For people to govern themselves. Maybe the divine right of kings is an illusion. And maybe we can get along without a king. And so you were asking about the current state of affairs in America today. I encourage everybody who will listen. To become a warrior in the new American revolution. And to get swept away with the idea. That. Our experiment is not over, and that we have had an economy based on competitive capitalism since we started, and that maybe it's time for the people to focus their attention on serving one another instead of trying to rip off one another, and that I can imagine and and I, I will acknowledge that it's imagining but I can imagine a force for good sweeping this country and infecting people with the idea that the first time that a politician steps out of line and accepts money from a special interest group that harms the community and i'm thinking specifically uh, and i'm not pointing any fingers but uh the pharmaceutical industry uh, pretty much owns and operates the government of the united states followed closely behind by the petrochemical industry and that if the people get it in their mind hey you know we could transform the world just by transforming our ideas and how do you do that? Well, ask Heavenly Father for guidance and that the spiritual promise is to seek and you'll find, ask and you'll receive, knock and it will be opened. What I'm trying to do as a recruiter for the new American revolution is to ask everybody, And on your podcast, I ask everybody who hears this to please commit to pray for this country, to pray for the republic, that we can, in fact, be one nation under God, not a whole bunch of subcultures, not left and right, not blue and red and Jew and Christian or Muslim, uh, one nation under God where we separate the church from the state, meaning that the state does not tell us how to seek out God. We seek out God on our own. But once we have that inspiration, once we have that voice from God, that we act in a responsible way uh, to listen and be guided by the spirit. And as we do that, we're going to be able to Uh, Throw out the money changers from the temple. The lobbyists are all going to be out of a job. Democracy will have its day. And when that happens, the guardian angels will come down from the sky to herald
0: the return of the king. (laughs) That sounds good to me. Finally, Andrew, what does America mean to you?
1: Hope. Hope. America means hope, Uh, America means the potential that comes from being able to make choices and exercising our free agency. And that if we lose that hope, uh, we're doomed. And if you look back at the history, the Judeo-Christian history, there have always been people who want to overthrow a representative government with a government of kings. Oh, we have to have a king. A king will take care of us. The king will defend us. The king is strong. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, King Saul back in the time of the Jews and the Philistines. And the Philistines were literally kicking their ass And nobody was more scared than Saul. And uh, people were praying, oh, do something, do something. God did something. He brought forth a little shepherd boy with three stones and a sling. And that was a hinge point of history. And so I'm looking for uh, little David with his sling and his three stones to... uh, Help defeat Goliath, the secret combinations and the crooks that um, are operating the government as a slush fund for their own criminal behavior. So uh, America means hope to me.
0: Thank you, Andrew, for spending your time with me. Thank you for sharing your American story. It means a lot to me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit the peopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.